Hello, good evening, and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. Tonight we're discussing the controversial use of the Joint Enterprise Doctrine to convict marginalised and vulnerable defendants, predominantly from BAME and working class communities, using little or no actual evidence of involvement for the most serious of crimes leading to mandatory life sentences. And incredibly, the Supreme Court ruled, I think it was five years ago now, that the uh, joint enterprise law had been wrongly applied for the last 30 years, and yet people are still languishing in prison. Our guests tonight are Becky Clark, who is a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. And in 2016, she co-authored a report, Dangerous Associations, Joint Enterprise, Gangs and Racism. And last year, she produced Stories of Injustice, which was a report on women convicted using joint enterprise. And our other guest is Gloria Morrison, who is a co-founder of the Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, or Jengba for short, which is a grassroots campaign supporting prisoners and their families serving mandatory life sentences for crimes they didn't commit. Launched in 2010, Jengba's now supporting over a thousand prisoners, the youngest being just 13 years of age when they were given a life sentence. So can I just perhaps start with you, Gloria, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the origins of Jengba uh, and say something about this Supreme Court ruling that must have given people hope, I suspect, when the uh, court ruled as they did. And yet, as I've just said, people are still languishing in prison. It just seems completely unjust. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Yeah. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you and everybody. Um, you, of course. Yes, being, being of Irish origin, that's very remiss of me. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all our viewers. Um, well, actually, one of the reasons why uh, we've been invited on is because you interviewed the Craigavon 2's legal team a couple of weeks ago, and they are a joint enterprise case, and um, Jengra have been supporting them since they've been convicted. Uh, we are now supporting over a 1,000 prisoners who are mainly serving mandatory life sentences, uh, ranging from the average now is about 20 years, so um, decades for crimes that they haven't, people haven't actually committed. I um, co-founded Jengba with uh, Janet Cunliffe in 2010 and some other women. It's not just myself and Jan. There are a lot of other really prominent women. It is mainly women. There are, are dads and uncles and brothers, but it's, it's a mainly a woman-driven campaign. Um, and that's because uh, if you convict someone of mainly murder, and you give them a, a mandatory life sentence, you, women won't put up with that. They won't. Um, but when it's, I'm here to represent my son's best friend, he was um, convicted of a murder he didn't commit. And I had never heard of joint enterprise. In fact, no one had in 2007. It was something that was brought in very stealthily by the then Labour government, we believe, um, to be tough on crime. Um, we've done research into it. You look back and it's actually... We think it, it goes back to the 17th century where you had um, jewellers who would uh, arrange to have a fight, arrange a meeting place, arrange weapons. So people knew that there was going to be someone seriously harmed or injured. And that was called common purpose back then. Mm. So they uh, outlawed duelling because of basically the upper classes on killing one another, but um, brought it forward into the 20th century where evidence such as a phone call, um, a YouTube, if you're in a YouTube thing, if you like grime music, very dangerous. Um, so there's lots of tropes that are used in the court to convict, but it, and you're 
with a joint enterprise case, and this isn't an exaggeration, you're going into court trying to prove innocence rather than the other way around. You're, you're guilty and because of who you might have hung out with or who you're in the dock with. And it's often, you know, if you've got five young black boys in the dock, which was my son's case, my son's best friend is a West Indian boy, then that's when I kind of instinctively thought, no, this has got to be racist because the jury don't know who's done what. The lawyers often go what's called cutthroat, so they start blaming everybody else. So jurors are just confused. And the language around joint enterprise is very complicated. They, they try to, at one point, call it parasitic, parasitic accessorial liability. Um, or, you know, it's just, it's just a way of saying you're all in it together. And that is definitely something that is a target for the working class and, and marginalised communities and that has happened and it's been happening until we formed our campaign and uh, we've got a very very good um, connection with the prisoners because we send in a regular newsletter and we try to keep it positive although campaigns of this nature as you'll be aware are, are hugely depressing because the legal establishment is actually even more difficult, I believe, than the political establishment because at least politics, you know, we've talked to politicians on both sides of the house. And once they understand the issue, um, they, they, you know, they, they know there's a problem. They know it's leading to miscarriages, whereas the legal establishment will not accept that they were applying the wrong law. So our campaign, we went to the Justice Selected Committee twice. We have uh, got lots of academic research. That's why we met people like Patrick and Becky, who did the Davis Associations um, report, which you know clearly stated that joint enterprise was racist, um, which Becky will tell you about. But but you know it was it's a chip chip chip. We've been at it for, for ten years now. It's our tenth year anniversary, and um, in 2016, the Supreme Court. Um, certified a question which is what they need to do of public importance is whether joint enterprise over criminalizes secondary parties now that's what jengba have been saying all along that yes you are you are you are convicting children as young as 13 for crimes they haven't actually committed but because they are in company with someone else who's committed crime that they should have foreseen that that person was going to go on to uh, commit a crime which in itself is just a nonsense so the supreme court um listened to a case which was R versus Jogi. Um, Jenba intervened in that in that uh, Supreme Court um, challenge because um, we could say, yes, we know you are over uh, criminalizing secondary parties. Um, the Supreme Court decision was that the law had taken a wrong turn in 1984 and that it had been relying on foresight. So that's the idea that you should could foresee what someone else was going to do and you had to take it back to intention. But even though hundreds of people have been convicted using the wrong law, they also put in a, a paragraph, which is paragraph 100, the Supreme Court decision, which is only cases that can prove substantial injustice can go back to the Court of Appeal. Now, the person who put that one in was Lord Thomas, and he was the Lord Chancellor of the, of the Court of Appeal. So what was happening to him in those previous years is he was just getting too many joint enterprises cases going back to the Court of Appeal. And you, you, if you had been convicted of murder you haven't committed, you are going to try and appeal it if you've got any sense. So that's what he was worried about. It was just too many cases coming back to the Court of Appeal. And that was a cost. 
because there's a you know there's a lot of cost in getting the case back to the court of appeal. So um, he put in that kind that kind of, sort of the only cases that can prove substantial injustice can then have their conviction overturned. Not one conviction since 2016 has been overturned bar one, which is John Crilly, who um, had his uh, conviction to change from a murder to a manslaughter. But all the other cases that we've taken back to the Court of Appeal, including children with learning difficulties, and the argument there was they could not have possibly had the right to a fair trial because they wouldn't have been understanding this really complex situation in, in, a, in an adult court. Lord Thomas said, no, they had a fair trial. We took another case back, which is Alex Henry, which is a case of a boy who's been diagnosed as autistic since he was sent to prison. So his case was in a very fast moving situation in a, a fight in a, in a, in a, a shop. Alex is seen throwing his phone down on the floor because his friend has been beaten up. That's all Alex does. And then he leaves. Unbeknownst to him, another boy that's with them has a concealed knife and he uses it and, and, and causes a fatality, sadly. So um, we argued that how could a boy with autism actually foresee what someone else was going to do in a fast moving 48 second situation? And Lord Thomas's decision on that one was that because um, Alex's mother is a psychologist, she taught her son how to pretend to be autistic, Shocking. to pull the wool over um, the eyes. And that the person who diagnosed him as autistic was Simon Baron-Cohen, Professor Simon Baron-Cohen, who's the lead expert on autism it, probably in the world. And he, you know, he has agreed with us that that was a policy decision because if Alex had got through, it would set precedent that any other person, we've got a lot of joint enterprise prisoners who, are, who suffer from autism or learning difficulties or a lot with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, lots of personality disorders, that it would give them weight back at the Court of Appeals. So that's why they, that's why they did that. Mm. Speaking as a layperson, seeing a uh, Supreme Court ruling that the law had been wrongly applied, I think a lot of people would think, well, everybody that's been convicted then under a wrongly applied law shouldn't have to even bother going back to court. They should just be released. How have the families sort of bared this sort of uh, terrible trauma? Well, I think, you know, it's, it was cruel. That decision was actually cruel because it was the prisoners who were up and down the country were just absolutely jumping up and down and thinking, yeah, we've won, we won. We came out of the Supreme Court crying, thinking that we'd won. We, you know, mums hugging one another and saying, and then, and then, Gradually, it sunk in because we went back in 2017 with cases and then we went back in 2018 with cases and just sunk in that actually we haven't won anything because that they are refusing to accept that they, this is common law. Homicide in this country is common law. That means it's judge-made law. So they're, accept, they're refusing to accept that they got it wrong. We, the people, didn't get it wrong. They got it wrong. Yeah. And they they won't accept that, and that's why campaigns like us are so so um, important. Absolutely, and hopefully we can give it a, a little bit more uh, currency tonight with this program, and we'll share it obviously after this evening and continue to you know, support your efforts. And we have a network of of branches now up and down the country, and uh, you know hopefully they will pick up the case as well. And I'm sure, given that you're representing a thousand individuals that uh, probably every region in the country is represented and so you know the resist movement for a people's party i think could be a useful ally in your campaign let me bring in becky though because becky's done quite a bit of 
research on this and published uh, reports. And I think you were saying, Becky, in your reports that there are, you know, it's a lot of racism and, and prejudice, it seems. Well, that's the implication anyway. Perhaps you could unpack that for us. Sure. Thanks for having me on this evening, Chris. Um, yeah, I, I kind of came to the the issues and, and the campaign really came to work on, on the area of joint enterprise in 2014. And myself and my colleague, Patrick Williams, had been doing research up in Manchester, which is where I'm based. Um, we were actually commissioned by the council to look at the way in which the, the police in Manchester were policing gangs and were responding to youth violence largely due to the policy that was being implemented around ending gangs and youth violence. So we were able to access information and look at these issues. And we'd uncovered that there was this disconnect really that whilst um, young people disproportionate from the black community were being policed under um, kind of this, this gang strategy, the majority of serious youth violence in the city was occurring in other communities and other neighborhoods. And so asking the question, well, why is this distinct policing happening? Now, we were aware of a couple of cases around John Enterprise, but you know we, we connected to Gloria because there was a recognition by Gloria and, and others working actually in the Institute for Race Relations that there was a disproportionate use of joint enterprise. And this narrative of the gang, which is particularly racialized, um, was being used in the courtroom to convict groups of young people, regardless of their different or, or lack of any involvement in cases. So this, you know, this real guilt by association. Um, but in that initial work, it was very much about looking at in the courtroom, how was this happening? So in what ways were the prosecution teams using police as expert witness on the stand, able to kind of construct the narrative and the story that the people in the dock in some way had either foresight or had intended collectively for the for the tragedy, for the for the death of, of another person to occur. And you know, the 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 different strategies and the report covers them, and I believe you'll be sharing this in, in the um in the feed if people want to look deeper, but such a range of strategies and the gang is very much the in in those cases that that are involving young people from the black community, the gang is the the way in which young people are kind of collectivized and understood to be acting together. But it actually is underpinned by a much longer standing set of tropes and stereotypes and racist judgments really about who is dangerous, who is violent, who is criminal. And, and you sort of see this sort of dog whistle strategies of the prosecution to the jury. You know, young people who are, you know, they're in their teens, they're contending with, um, sort of these prosecution narratives supported by the police in the courtroom that refer to the gangs in LA, that refer to events and, and issues that have happened before they were born. But these narratives and these sort of references are so powerful that, you know, young people are unable to, and their defence, sadly, and, and not even attempting sometimes to contend with what's being presented in the courtroom. So young mm. people are getting sentenced to 10, 20 years in prison for an offence they've clearly not committed. And the the argument or the evidence that is being used in the courtroom is based on a much wider set of almost um, 
societal stories and narratives and understandings are racialized that are racist in terms of their their underpinnings about who is dangerous who we look to when we're ex uh, when we're seeking to um see who's to blame or culpable for violent crime so um myself and patrick had done that work um and it actually was published a, um, a few weeks before the supreme court ruling in 2016 so it was part of that kind of gathering momentum that Gloria has just spoken about. Um, but what had happened when we were doing that work was we were aware of a few cases of women, but, you know, they were unusual and different. And I think at that time there was a sense that, yeah, there were women in, involved or brought into this net through joint enterprise cases, but maybe there was something different going on with those cases. So myself and a colleague, Catherine Chadwick, we were able to take on a piece of work. We started it around two years ago to try and find out more. Um, Jemba was supporting about 60 odd women um, through the campaign. We had the support of other organisations like Women in Prison, the Centre for Women's Justice Appeal, other campaigning and, and service providing organisations really um, to try and sort of snowball and identify more women. And maybe that's something I should should say quite clearly for the viewers that joint enterprise is hidden. Regardless of the calls that came, particularly after the Supreme Court ruling for transparency and public information about who is being subject to joint enterprise convictions, the numbers, where they are, this remains entirely hidden. So to find people who are convicted on a joint enterprise, you have to be able to get into those prisons onto those landings and wings and, and find out who is subject to that conviction and sometimes people aren't entirely sure and that may seem strange or sometimes it's only in the later stages of a trial that a defendant becomes aware that they are being convicted under joint enterprise laws um so there are a number of real procedural questions and issues but, but just to return to the, the stories of injustice work, which was the what we called the report that we published um, just last autumn, so in November of last year, um, we at that point when we published, we had found 109 women convicted, women of all ages, from all backgrounds. Um, over three quarters of the women had been convicted of murder or manslaughter, so the most serious violent offences. And, you know, they're then serving those mandatory minimum life sentences, 12, 16, 20, 25, 30 years. But what we found was examining the prosecution documents, the media, in 90% of these cases, there was no argument that the women had been involved in any violence. So they absolutely are secondary parties. There's, a, there's an acknowledgement that they haven't engaged in the violence. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how are they in the dock? How are they convicted? And this is where we see the credibility of women, you know, misogyny, class stigma, you know, single mothers being constructed in the dock as being failed mothers, failed parents. We see women who are viewed as living alternative lifestyles. So these sort of gendered expectations, well, this woman is out of home. She's out of the relationship. She's out of the family, you know. Things that I think perhaps we sometimes think have changed in society, but that's yeah. absolutely what's happening in the courtroom. Um, was there a race and uh, and or a class dimension uh, with regard to 
the application of joint enterprise for women or was it more generalized for women? No, absolutely. You know, there was, um, I think, around a quarter of those 109 women um, identified as being from black, Asian or other minoritized communities. There were a few traveler women in there as well. And the tropes and narratives that are then used in court are very particular. I have, and I'll just read off my screen if you don't mind, because I think it's important to hear the narratives that are spoken about the women and the ways in which they then kind of contest that or challenge that. So I'll read a couple of quotes, if I may, Chris, just to show how it works. So this is Lisa, and it's a pseudonym. But Lisa is constructed in the media and in the prosecution um, argument as being the honey trap girl. She is involved in gang violence and it says in the media, good riddance to the honey trap killer because she's actually now facing deportation charges. But Lisa's narrative to us as researchers was, I was mentally weak and unstable. I accepted all of his abuse. I was unaware of their criminal activity, unaware that he'd had a knife. I apparently lured my boyfriend to be murdered. So this is a young woman and we see this this trope of honey trap is very much it's a racialized construct of of a of a young black woman or a young mixed race woman we saw also in the context of um women from asian communities so pakistani community where there was this kind of sense of um women and i'll give you another quote again the prosecution quoted in the media said she was angry at his infidelity and the dishonor his behavior brought upon her and her family. But this woman said they didn't understand the Pakistani culture. The defense didn't want to use it or examine it. So we almost see sort of a process of racialization that's sort of stereotyping women and problematizing women. But then the court silences or does not want to engage with what's really the context, why maybe they are in the dock with a co-defendant that they've been in a relationship with or that they've suffered um, violence at the hands of. So there's this sort of like over-highlighting and hyper-visibility of certain aspects of the women in their lives that are absolutely based around, as you yeah. say, class stigma or racism. But then a lack of engagement or acknowledgement about how or why a woman might find herself in a situation unable to act, unable to to, um, report something happening, unable to um, say no to making a phone call, but then they're held culpable and responsible for these really serious violent crimes. So I hope that gives you a flavour for how how it happens. To hear um, the way in which the authorities are are still treating women, and I know it's kind of a, a different issue but just looking at the way in which the inquiries into the Yorkshire Ripper were conducted when they thought it was uh, mainly uh, sex workers it was almost a sense of well they kind of deserved it they were seen as second-class citizens and then when somebody wasn't a sex worker then suddenly oh hang on we need to take this a bit more seriously shockingly uh, prejudiced views and it seems those prejudices from what you're saying, Becky, are, are still prevalent. And that, that's really depressing. Here we are kind of, what, 30, 40 years later. I mean, have we moved on at all, do you think, in, in, in that time in, in regards to, you know, policing and, the, and the, you know, the kind of criminal justice authorities and their attitudes towards women and class and, and race or not? I think it's really difficult to see that any progress in that sense. I mean, for me, joint enterprise has always been almost a lens through which you can see all the problems of the criminal justice system because 
it's not about crime or the person being criminal it's about the the way in which the process through which people become criminalized or punished you know we've always known we know right now the criminal justice system cannot effectively respond to crime i think it prosecutes around 10 percent of all reported crime you know we know in the context of sexual violence or rape it's less than two percent so we know that the criminal justice system doesn't deal with all of these harmful events and behaviors are so it selects doesn't it there's a process of selection going on about who ends up coming through that process to the point of criminalization prosecution conviction and i think you're right i think we've known from those examples you give you know in the, in the in the 70s and 80s which communities are viewed as suspect as requiring a distinct or different well, approach to policing you know and and we, we made reference to the irish community um you know which women um which communities based upon class are, are viewed as problematic or and like you say there's almost a sense of as well undeserving of a true process of justice almost collateral in yeah. well we need to demonstrate we can be tough on crime we can respond to violent crime few innocent people in in you know going into prison as a result of that need to to have that sort of tough and legitimate stance but you know we need to keep uncovering this injustice because it is still happening I mean, I think from my experience as a, as a former member of parliament and, and leader of a, of, a, of a council, there's a kind of a one dimensional sort of policy response, really, rather than, you know, we're going to be tough on crime rather than I know Blair did talk about being tough on crime, but tough on the causes. Of crime. He didn't do enough on the being tough on the causes, in my opinion. I think there needs to be a, you know, a more sort of wide ranging dynamic response policy. response, in, in my view, but I'm just interested. Obviously, Becky, you've written some fairly kind of searching reports which I mean, I'm assuming they're available, and I'm not sure if we put the the links up on the uh, on the screen if people are interested in, in reading them. But what's been the response? How have they been received? How were your reports received by those in authority? Because obviously these reports are important; they set the scene. They obviously are well researched, and um, they are then acted upon. That's that's the worry, you know, for me. I mean, what what what's been the political response? What's been the police response and the and the other? Mm -hmm or justice uh, authorities response to your reports i'll perhaps start and then i'll pass to gloria because you know gloria's and and Jemba is an organ as a as a grassroots organization their ability to really um lever engagement and and support politically has has, has been you know astounding really but okay. i was going to come to Gloria in a minute but just talk yeah. to about the, the the sort of political campaigns and the response from from politicians, but I'd just be interested in just getting a sense from to the research you, with these kind of academic studies that you've done. How, how are they then received by the by the authorities? Well, I think you know there there's there's been a range of of, of engagement with it. I mean, there've been MPs who have engaged with us because their constituents are are, are approaching them for support, and and so our local MP in Manchester, Lucy Powell, has been has engaged with the research because a number of constituents, there was a case in Manchester in um, 2017 where 11 young people were convicted to 168 years in prison in a single joint enterprise case. And all of those young people are black and mixed race young people, youngest 14. Um, and so she very much engaged with the research because she was fighting for those constituents. So we've had that kind of response where MPs they're being asked to take on their role for their constituents and then the academic research facilitates and, and maybe allows that credibility and, and, and legitimacy of the, the work they're seeking to do. 
David Lamey, I mean, his report from his review, he cited our work multiple times. I think it'd be fair to say every time there was a claim around explicit racism, which I think our research, you know, clearly makes that statement because we feel the evidence is this isn't unconscious racial bias. This is fundamentally racism operating in different layers in these institutions. And I think our research, again, it becomes almost um, in that report, it becomes referenced and cited as the empirical evidence of claims of racism. And so I think mm. it has been used, but I, I feel sometimes a bit frustrated that actually, you know, if we have this evidence, and we recognise the harms of the injustice, and we recognise that actually joint enterprise fails on the claims of the police and others because it doesn't act as a deterrent. That you know, all of the evidence more broadly around deterrence in relation to harsh sentences is that you know it, it doesn't work. No. You know, so I think that I, I would love to see politicians being braver and rather than just seeking to use our research to sort of support them when they're willing to push into. To some of these difficult areas i want to see a politicians we can follow you know yeah, and we yeah. can work yeah. with and see fighting for change that's what i would like to see um but we've well, had some great yeah. contact yeah I let's bring in gloria then on that on that point because uh, i mean i met with uh, gloria or by via zoom and, and some of the uh, colleagues in the in the campaign uh, talking about your uh, political campaign that you've been engaged in, in with, with parliamentarians. Just uh, tell us a little bit about that, uh, Gloria, and, and the kind of reaction that you're getting from both sides of the, the chamber in the House of Commons. Well, I, I, I'm glad Becky mentioned that we are totally grassroots. So I didn't even really know what grassroots meant when I first started this campaign. I didn't know that, you know, it, it's it's something that comes from necessity rather than, um, you know, it's coming from the bottom up and, and and I think one of the approaches we've kind of done is like, we're just, we're not, but we're just normal women. And we, you know, if we can get access to an MP, we've done it. And if we can get, you know, a bit of their time, there hasn't been many that haven't realised, you know, this is actually very dangerous. This is this is, is a real um, insult to the British justice system because we believe we've got one of the best in the world. And if you have something like joint enterprise, you're up there with North Korea. I mean, you lock up families because we lo we've got a lot of families. We've got two sisters, two lot, three lots of sisters, a dad and a mum, you know, like they're, they're, it's nuts. Just it's families. It's not it's not gangs. But in terms of the MPs, it, it's it's like Becky says, you can kind of get um, you can kind of get some traction, and then everything changes. I mean, in two thousand and three, the Law Commission, uh, I think it was the Tory party, said, you know, look into homicide reform, and they did, and they came up with some really sensible um, um, suggestions. What Almoride uh, was the Law Commission at the time, and if those had been implemented. Um, then a lot of our prisoners would not be in prison serving life mandatory sentences for murder. They might, some might have got manslaughter, some would have got um, a fray or, uh, or whatever it was they were actually involved in. But, um, but then government changed. So those, those, uh, the Royal Commission report was just sort of pushed into the long grass and there it remains. So our next um, political step is we're going to try and propose private members, not try, we will propose a private members bill, which is to get rid of the substantial injustice test, because that test is 
too high. It's cruel. It's too high. It means that you're not, you know, no one can actually address the fact that their their um, their conviction was a wrongful conviction, not miscarriage justice. These are wrongful convictions, and um, we've been very, very adamant. Our families and our prisoners, prisoners engage with the, the political system they engage with their mps and got a lot of mps that just don't bother responding back to them which is you know is pointless and then you get a lot of MPs who you know are interested in the issue we don't have enough though we, uh, we genuinely don't have enough vocal mps that will uh completely back that this it, it needs abolishing joint enterprise in its current what, format because the other thing that happened in 2016 people think it went away yeah, people, young people in particular think it's stopped, and it hasn't. What can people do then who are watching Gloria to support your campaign? How can they get involved and lobby their own MPs, for example? To yeah, well, to... we're going that big. Yeah, thanks. Um, like I said, this is all a bit of a learning curve. So what we're doing is we're just we're just at the moment. The bill is in a consultation stage. It's gone out to a lot of. Uh, legal academics who come back, they've and QCs, they've given us their feedback. So once the bill's ready, we will uh, announce it on a launch date. We've just started a podcast, which we're just dinosaurs, but we're, you know, so there will be more online information going out that people can get if they follow our our podcast, our Twitter feed. We've got a petition that's already had a lot of signatures, but we're going to release a new petition. Not particularly a fan of petitions, but we need something sort of physical that people can do a new petition with the um with the bill yeah, it's called the joint enterprise bill and and we really urge anyone just to talk to them because the thing is that like becky said this is a hidden problem people don't know about it and then when you talk about it and you say do you know what joint enterprise is and you know any fair-minded person anyone who actually believes in injustice and that's that's from politicians on both sides um, you know that we we really need to have fair a fair justice system. Then um, you know they they will support us, but it's just getting that message to them because people just don't know anything about joint enterprise. Mm, no, indeed, absolutely. Uh, I mean that's that's uh, that's a big uh, challenge, and uh, I guess unless you're um, affected by it personally, um, yeah. it, it will pass a lot of people by, and people will buy in, no doubt, to the lurid headlines in the in the mainstream media that like to sell newspapers on the backs of um hyperbolizing stories and absolutely really absolutely the media have got so much i, I did some research um, the co-founder of the campaign is janet cunliffe and her son is jordan cunliffe and i went and did some research around his trial and that was completely weaponized by the tories at the time cameron at the time that trial because it was in the sun every single day they talked about them as feral Britain, broken Britain. Um, they, the Sun actually at the time was calling for the death penalty to be brought back. And the last man hung in this country was uh, Derek Bentley, and that was a joint enterprise. So they were actually saying, you know, the, these young people who were, Jordan Cunliffe is a 15-year-old blind boy. He didn't touch the victim or see the victim, yet he's serving a life sentence for that, for the, um, which would have been a, a manslaughter for um so it's it's actually politicians weaponizing sort of murder and grief and i mean we saw it happen recently with this young woman that's been murdered by the police officer which is you know it, and also the police have an awful lot to answer for in this because um 
you know, the joint enterprise means that people get recommendations and commendations and, you know, they want a result. Our justice system is not about getting justice. It's about getting a result. And prisoners often have told me that, you know, when they come back and they get guilty, the police officer all high-fiving and cheering and, you know, and this is sending people to prison for 30 years for things they haven't actually done. And the police are happy about that. And that's another massive big worry that we've really got to address that, you know, how, how this you know, is allowed to permeate through the police force that they then become, it's, a, it's um, we could say it's a, it's a uh, what's it called, hammer to crack a nut, it's just to, sledgehammer, it's just so easy to put a group of people in the dock with no actual evidence, but just association and assumptions. Whereas if you have one person who's been convicted of a murder, you've got to have DNA, you've got to have witnesses, you've got to have actual evidence. You don't need it with a group. Becky, I mean, before I bring in Sean and get reaction from our viewers, I mean, uh, I've got a sort of personal prejudice, really. I feel that our criminal justice system is, is totally unfit for purpose and the prisons do not work. I mean, uh, you know, there's been various Home Secretaries, certainly Tories, probably Labour ones as well, but uh, I'm certainly aware of the Tory ones who who tell us in a very bellicose way how prison works and they're going to be tough on crime and all that sort of nonsense. Um, but, I mean, don't we need a different type of criminal justice system? I mean, you know, sending people to prison, young people and, and adults, it costs a fortune and that money couldn't be better deployed, couldn't it, on different solutions that would actually genuinely work? I mean, have you done any research on that, Becky, or do you have any any views about that um i mean I've, I've been a researcher for 20 years i've worked in an applied setting so i've worked in the probation service i've worked in prisons and and i suppose for a long time with that sense of well how do we understand um you know the the potential to create better or more effective interventions or prisons or services in in the criminal justice system and and i i think ultimately yeah you're right i think i think we need to sort of disconnect this assumption that the criminal justice system and punishment and prisons is in some way responding to crime per se because as i said before there's this really um you know i, th I think as a society we need to understand better kind of how crimes and harms are actually being responded to anyway you know the majority of crimes and harms are not being brought into the criminal justice system so the idea that prison is responding to crime and harm anyway is almost a myth that needs to be sort of busted and opened up and understood because then i think we'd, we'd be able to think about in a more um radical and challenging way well what are we actually using prison for which individuals which crimes which harms and then think more about well actually does it even meet its own aims and goals you know looking at the prison cut i mean you know as a result of the work that we've been doing with Gember, i've been writing to a number of, of of women in the prison to ensure that they're kind of understanding the process of us sharing the research and the evidence it's very much a collective and a collaborative process but we're inevitably talking to families and, and engaging and interacting with women in prison at the minute you know they've spent a year in the most damaging and harmful space and context and yes okay we're talking about individuals who are maybe you know innocent wrongfully convicted but even in that space when somebody has 
is committed a crime, how is that space going to reduce the potential for harm? You know, it's going to um, reduce the likelihood of that individual, you know, committing a further offence. You know, I think we, we absolutely need to think about alternative solutions around justice. But as Gloria said as well, even before prison, you know, we need to think about, well, what is this process of justice? Because at the minute, it's so adversarial. It's, it's almost, you look at joint enterprise cases and it's a game. Yeah. It's a game that barristers, police, judges, it, it's almost as if this is about winning rather than it's truth. Thinking about people's um, lives. It's, it's increasingly about money. It's, yeah. it's, it's marketized. It's a financial set of, of kind of, um interests and motivations and so we're in a, you know there is there is a lot to unpack and unpick but yeah absolutely i would advocate for i think there's there's not enough evidence to demonstrate that the criminal justice system is effective in delivering any kind of successful protection or response to crime and harm and then also it, it is facilitating and driving further harms and and problems within society so yeah i would absolutely advocate for we need doing not like a holistic response in any event. I mean, it's kind of, you know, looking at criminal justice, even if we reform criminal justice and made it more fit for purpose, if we didn't actually address some of the other drivers in society around poverty, around housing, around, um, you know, education, um, employment opportunities, etc., cetera, uh, um, you know, tackling drugs well, as we, a issue rather than a criminal justice one and so on. Then we're using prison to to address to to respond to you know if you look at who's in prison and you look at who comes through that process and particularly you know a different group of prisoners potentially to the joint enterprise prisoners but you know people who are kind of going in and out of prison and through that revolving door you know that that's a, a representation of the failures of other policies and strategies like you say around housing around health and mental health around um homelessness around addiction around you know all of those social health welfare issues that we've failed on so you you're absolutely right prisons kind of must be seen and understood as part of that bigger set of policy failure rather than on their own as it were no indeed and i guess one of the things that we've been talking about as a movement that we're trying to build is to kind of this notion of raising consciousness on lots of issues really and try and get people kind of thinking about some of this stuff because as we were saying earlier unless it affects you personally or your friend or family member you know people are just kind of blissfully ignorant yeah. of what's been happening in our name at the end of the day i mean and uh, you know especially yeah. in democracy and this is a total injustice that's been going on and uh, anyway let me bring in sean now our moderator and just get a, a sense of what our audience has been saying for the last 10 or 15 minutes Hi, good evening everyone. Um, great discussion again this evening. Thank you for that. Um, great guests. It's definitely an issue that is new to me and I think new to a lot of the people on our chat as well. Um, they've been listening intently to what you've been saying and obviously the first question that we're going to have is um, how can the general public help? I'll take that one a bit. Um, just get behind um, any kind of uh, well, there's a lot of prison abolition uh, groups out there as well, but um, any groups that are kind of monitoring what's going on in terms of the criminal justice system, and especially gender, now don't underestimate, prisons are a business. That's what's what's, what's happening there. And they're trying to build a new big women's prison. And the prison's minister said the reason why they want to build a new women's prison is because they're going to put 
200 new police officers on the street. Oh, 20,000 new police officers. Well, well, it's just nuts. Challenge this stuff. Don't just think oh, it's over there. Anyone who goes to, like I did, honestly, before my son's best friend went to prison, I thought anyone who went to prison deserved to go to prison because you've done something wrong. Our prisons are absolutely horrible. We still have prisons that slop out. That means prisons have to pee and shit in a bucket. We still have prisons and they're, where they're trebling up because they're so packed. We're up to 89,000. So we need to challenge. We are the only country in Europe that sends children to prison for life. No other country in Europe does that. So while part of Jimba's drive, and there's a, another a campaign called Article 39, is to abolish child lifers. It's, it's just a given in the 21st century that people should be outraged. We're not angry enough. We're just not angry enough. We just think, oh, yeah, especially if, you know, it says in the papers that, oh, she committed a murder. She must have, she must have, you know, actually committed a murder. Well, as Becky's told you, 90% of the women actually didn't engage in any violence. It's not like they, they you know, they weren't, they weren't engaged in violence at all. But it's not just the women. The tropes that are used in the women's cases are exactly the same as that's used in the men's cases and in children's cases. And in children's cases in, in, in themselves, the fact that you've got a moderator saying these children were not understanding because they had learning ages of eight and nine. So Lord Thomas, they couldn't have understood what was going on. And he said, of course, they did. You know, the, challenge that. These judges are, are working for the people. They are supposed to be, you know, the, we all doff our caps to the judges as if they have, you know, the power over the people, they don't. We have the power to get rid of MPs that won't stand up against injustice. We have the power to say we don't want to be judged by these out-of-touch judges who have no idea what it's like to grow up in a West London housing estate. We, you know, we have to be more vocal. And if that's why, you know, I mean, Becky and I both feel, you know, politically kind of in, and a lot of people I know feel politically in a wilderness will because the Labour Party at the moment led by Keir Starmer is less than useless. And, and we went to see Keir Starmer when he was DPP and he said, my hands are tied. And so then we went to see him and he was uh, um, the MP for the Holborn and he said, oh, well, you know, I think Keir Starmer's got a lot to do with how joint enterprise is currently being used because he was part of that cohort with Blair, Straw, Straw, the IPPs, still haven't corrected that. He's still got thousands of prisoners serving these life sentences and don't have a release date and and the fact that we don't aren't angry enough about it is what really upsets me so i think that's what people need to do they need to get angrier and more vocal and say no this is not not in my name not in my name we're not going to carry on locking up children and giving children life sentences for something they haven't actually done and if a child does do something as bad as what they did to jamie bolger which has been the they need help those children need absolute psychiatric help for years, probably, but they don't need to be put into a prison system that's not going to help them, and they're going to come out as truly damaged individuals. Sorry, a bit of a rant.
No, that was that was great. You know, it's uh, like you say, pe- people don't think about that question. Why has that happened? And that there's always a reason by behind the, why somebody does something. People don't just go out and murder somebody um, for no reason. I think the majority of people realise that um, when police are looking at suspects, um, it's it's normal murders, homicides, whatever. It's normally somebody who is known to that person um so you don't just get people going out and killing somebody so that there's always reasons behind anything that happens and i think you, you're so right people need to stop and think about that a little bit more um james mc um says absolutely disgraceful criminalization of innocent people guilty by association by simply being present when someone else commits a crime um siobhan moynihan um uh, she's relating back to the craig Avon two case that we um, spoke about last week uh, or the week before, uh, Brendan and John Paul, known as the Craig Avon two, were convicted in a Diplock court with only one judge under joint enterprise, although the judge could not ascribe a role to either man. Um, James NC goes on to say, um, it is legislation that aims to divide and conquer struggling vulnerable individuals who are involved in gangs these are people who need support both physically and mentally. It's disgraceful. Um, Mark Anderson says uh, the government's new police bill virtually invites a significant uh, significant increase in joint em- enterprise. Have any of you got any um, any comments on the on the new police crime sentencing and courts bill? Thank you. Um, it's actually something. I've, oh, excuse me. Is there a bit of feedback there? Um, no, fine. Am I okay? Okay, thank you, Sean. It's actually something I've been discussing with students over the last few days. So I'm I'm informed by way of having those debates and dialogues with with young people um, who are studying at MMU, and you know I I think it's deeply concerning because we see um, you know we were we were looking at the police um the policing bill and, and the courts bill as a way of thinking about how that kind of state power to criminalize to kind of extend legal sanctions for additional i mean the language in that bill is around people the process of criminalization can, can occur now for annoyance or nuisance this does remind me of joint enterprise because you know in joint enterprise we hear concepts like foresight or you know, um, collective purpose or intent. These are about kind of subjectively judging what somebody was thinking or, you know, this isn't about criminalising even clear acts that can be evidenced and understood. This is about subjective judgment about whether or not somebody's causing a nuisance or causing an annoyance. Or This really opens up. And so I think, you know, I can see these in that bill the the lang- the creeping language of those authoritarian strategies around you know the state's use of the criminal justice system and the rule of law to kind of to manage and control obviously in, in these cases often in relation to dissent but but what probably if i was to reflect on it one of the things that struck me watching it over recent days as it's as it's gone for its second reading is there's this sort of willingness of politicians, particularly after events at the weekend, to kind of come out and, and critique or push back, you know, particularly from Labour around the policing of protest or the policing of gathering. But there's this kind of 
because of, of the tragic events of, of the young woman losing her life um, and being murdered, you know, we, we see this sort of, at the same time, sometimes same politicians saying, but we're very happy with the way in which the bill introduces harsher sentences, longer prison sentences and mandatory sentences. So we've got these, and I think this is part of the problem in this contradictory and it's populist of, you know, we will engage with this, this sort of more criticising um, challenge to state power and, and policing and control in this way, but we're very happy to support it in this other way. And, and that's that to me, that's what's deeply troubling. There's, it doesn't seem to be coming from a well-informed or understood position. It's coming from a position of, like we said, playing to media or populist understandings. That's that's really dangerous. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm hopeful because young people that I'm, I'm talking to are as concerned about it as I am. And I think that that for me is important and hopeful because I think as long as we can see, you know, some sections of, of our communities um, and our society questioning and challenging what's happening here, then there is still hope that people will push back against these increasing powers and, and uh, uh, criminalisation. Yeah. Gloria, yeah. did you want to add something on that? Yeah, I do. I, I, I Believe it or not, I don't, didn't know, I've been, been on many marches before, but... Um, Jengba is built on marches. I mean, we, our mums like, we wear red. Lord Thomas doesn't like us wearing red. Um, red's our colour. Uh, we wear bangles. We are, we call ourselves a family. And the fact that we haven't been able to protest or march for over a year has been really, really difficult for us because we were going to launch the bill with a big march. When the lockdown ends, it's going to be our biggest march ever. It will be our biggest protest, always peaceful protests. I always contact the police before we have a march because uh, it's always in central London normally, but there are marches around the country. But And the police sometimes escort us and, and you know, they're polite and bobbies and they're going, what's all this about? And they haven't heard about joint enterprise and they don't agree with it. So marching and protest is fundamental to our campaign. And this bill, uh, if they think it's going to stop people marching, all it's going to do is lock up more people in prison because we will get arrested. That's on my bucket list. And they've monetized the the prison system, of course, with the privatization of uh, prisons, which continued or started under the Tories, but continued under New Labour. And the prison population has exploded. And I don't think, you know, we're certainly not any safer as a consequence of that. And it just, again, another pointer really to the, abject failure of the criminal justice system. Any concluding uh, um, comments before I ask Becky and Gloria, if they've got any final comments I want to make, uh, Sean? Um, so Helen Davis asked, RMP Mike Ward, Dudley South, has said he cannot help. Is this correct? Um, is, is it a fact that MPs are unable to help with this? With this campaign, um, what can people do to to engage their MPs? Yeah, we get sort of very standard responses back from MPs um, that uh, the Justice Minister is not Lucy Power, not Power Lucy Fraser is not. Um, we're not going to look at the issue of joint enterprise right now. I mean, it's a, just a standard cut and paste response. But I think you badger them, you badger them, and you say, well. Can you tell me why? Why you think it's okay that a 13-year-old child is sent to prison for something they haven't done? 
uh, or why a disabled child was given a life sentence for something. So it's a case of like, it, what we talk about as campaigners is we've just chipped, we've been chipping for 10 years and we just chip, chip, chip. And, and, and you know, that, that if they won't um, make a stand, if their MP won't make a stand, we need a naughty list. You know, we need to sort of say, well, those were the ones. I think, I think um, Chris, I'm right in saying it was Chris Mullen who actually championed the Birmingham uh, six case. Yes, it was. And, yeah. yeah, and all uh, right. Well, yeah, and then you know because they had champions that that that, and we have got good MPs who are, are totally supportive, but we need more. We need more that you know they're not they're not lone voices and that you know, but but we we vote for as so. a MP. Well, what I'd recommend people do is uh, don't take, as Gloria said, no for an answer. Just go and see them at the surgery. Most of them operate a, a regular weekly or fortnightly uh, advice surgery. Go and see them and, and take a delegation uh, and just push them. That's that's the key. And then the other thing I'd recommend people do is get, get a book called Rules for Radicals. That, that gives you some great tips on how to be an effective campaigner. Becky, have you got any final comments, closing comments? We've got about two, three minutes left. I suppose just help us spread the message, really. I mean, I noticed in some of the comments, there's, there were a number that said, gosh, this is shocking. I wasn't aware of this. And and I think that it's fabulous to come on something like this because we're opening up. Sometimes it feels like we're often speaking to some of the same faces, same, you know, same communities, same voices. So it's great to kind of push into, you know, speaking to new people. I think there was shared, we had a short 20 minute film, a documentary film, it's fantastic made um, and it's available by the home digital channel. Use that if you can, come back to us. We're always happy to come and speak with other groups, um, you know, but but kind of pushing that awareness out there. And then like, like Gloria says, maybe finding cases that have, have happened in your constituency and supporting those families and, and kind of pushing on MPs. I think sometimes when you've got that sense of there's a, there's a, there's a case in the constituency and there's other members of the constituency showing concern, that can be the point of the tipping point, I think, where an MP feels moved or pressured to kind of act and, and offer that support. So, yeah, please just um, where you can raise that awareness and, and, and push and lobby those MPs. Great. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed to, to Becky Clark and to Gloria Morrison. Brilliant guests this evening. Really, really interesting discussion. And uh, well, obviously, we need to do everything we can, I think, to uh, continue to support you. We have a conference coming up at the end of the year in October. And it would be great, actually, to get Jemba there, perhaps, as a, an exhibitor to try and spread the word. I mean, we're, we're expecting, uh, you know, hundreds, probably well over a thousand uh, delegates to the conference. And, uh, you know, your attendance, I think, would be really useful. Maybe run a workshop there, perhaps, as well. Because I think it's so important, this point I was making earlier about raising consciousness is, is so key. There's so many injustices in, in the world and injustices in this country. And we just need to alert people to it. Because I think when people are made aware of these injustices, it, it does infuriate people and uh, and that that kind of inspires people to to get involved and to you know to take the, the campaign forward so i want to thank both uh, becky and, and gloria again for for uh, excellent presentations this evening i think you've opened the eyes of a lot of people and hopefully that will help us to and help you to to spread the word um next week we will be here the same time at the same place at seven o'clock so thank everybody for watching this evening and please join us again next wednesday at 7 p.m Thanks a lot and good night.